Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here, and today I want to continue a message that I started last week. So if you're new to us, the next 40 minutes or so, I'm going to offer a teaching. Uh, Then there'll be another song, and um, then if you want to, you can go home. But if you want to stay here longer, you can feel free to do that. So uh, sometimes people are surprised when they enter our prayer center on the third floor here, up, uh, up in that part of the, on the other side of the wall there above the risers, and see a piece of stained glass featuring an image of the resurrected Christ reaching out his nail-scarred hands. The, this image of the resurrected Jesus was actually our logo in the early years and for a number of years here at the Life Christian Church. We're going back, you know, 30 years. And this stained glass was placed on the back wall of our stage at our old Harrison Avenue worship center facing the congregation for a long period of time. This logo served us well, mostly uh, for a number of years. I say it served us well mostly because I think about things like the time that we sponsored Powell Baseball here in town, and there's this beautiful, idyllic little Field of Dreams uh, baseball field uh, just off of Main Street, and the, the, the outfield fence are great big plywood boards. And so TLCC wanted to sponsor these kids playing baseball, and we painted, th- someone, I didn't know, painted this logo on uh, the outfield wall, and I went to see one of my boys play ball, and it looked like Jesus was standing there in left field saying, hit it to me, hit it to me. I, uh, I know that sounds sacrilegious, I, I, but actually I think Jesus, from what I understand of him, would find that funny. But anyway, here's the backstory with that logo. Early in my tenure here, we named the church the Life Christian Church, the Life Christian Church, because uh, of several reasons, but for one, we wanted to clearly identify as a Christian church, and we wanted to clearly identify with the resurrected Christ. Jesus called himself the resurrection and the life, and we wanted to to very intentionalize, emphasize Jesus as the life. So when you say the life, it's not life, Christian church. It's the life, Christian church. It's a reference to Jesus who is the life. He said after his resurrection, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. The risen Christ is the life at the Life Christian Church. And though in time we updated our logo actually many years ago and needed to, we've never changed our focus on the resurrected, alive, now, and forever, Jesus Christ. Now, here's part of why I think it's important to say that as a kind of an introduction to some of what I'm going to get into in a few minutes. I believe, and I know that a lot of respected theologians concur, and this is a nuanced point, but it actually is important, that there is not enough focus and centering on the resurrected Jesus. For instance, Some well-meaning, well-intentioned branches of the Christian family focus on images like the crucifix, the cross with Jesus dying on it, 
Now, I don't believe that that's in any way inherently wrong, but I do believe that the emphasis is mistakenly incomplete. Jesus is not in a perpetual state of death. His dying, as essential as it was, lasted but a few hours. He was in the state of death for only three days, three long, horrific days, but three days. The larger point is that he had lived since before the beginning of time, and that he lived on this earth for 33 years as the incarnate Son of God, and that he died, but just three days later, he was raised from death to life, and his life stretches from then until forever. His dying and entering death was an outrageous act of love and a necessary evil, but it was a means to an end. And what is the end? The end was and ever is life. The life that he has in himself and the life that he wants to give anyone who truly believes in him. The emphasis is life. As John said, as he was summing up why he had written the gospel that carries his name, the gospel of John. He said, what has been written down in this book has been written that you will be believers, that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have the life that is as present as the simple invocation of his name. I want to strongly suggest that our focus is on his life and our life in him. The great Dallas Willard wrote this, the resurrection, not the death of Christ, was the central fact in the gospel of the early believers. If you read the New Testament with this in mind, by the way, you'll be shocked to see how much the emphasis is on the resurrected Jesus. The resurrection, Willard said, validated the reality and the indestructibility of what Jesus had preached and exemplified before his death, the enduring reality and openness of God's kingdom. With all of this clearly in view, it becomes understandable why the simple and wholly adequate word for salvation in the New Testament is life. In other words, when we talk about his life, it sums up everything that Jesus came to be and to do for us. And so when we think of the gospel, we should sandwich life around death. The gospel is the life death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. The life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. Paul told the Philippians that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So here's the deal, guys. I don't want us to look at Jesus hanging on a cross in a perpetual state of death and say, like I think some people misguidedly say, poor Jesus. I want you to look at Jesus and say, Wow, Jesus is Lord. 
He is not in a state of dying or death. His state of being is, and it has always been, except for three long, essential, eternally important days, life. He lives now, and he is exalted as Lord of all. It's not poor Jesus. It's Jesus, Lord of the universe, alive now and alive forever. And when we confess our faith in him, what we get is his life. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about that to balance some of it out theologically, but I don't feel like balancing something out today. I want to emphasize what I want to emphasize. Come around for a year and you'll hear me talk about this perhaps from other perspectives. I love this passage from Hebrews chapter 7, which tells us that Jesus has become a priest. The teaching here in Hebrews is about how Jesus is always living to intercede for us before God. And it says Jesus has become a priest. He's in the position he is on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Another translation says, according to the power of an endless life. Another translation says, Jesus, by the sheer force of resurrection life, he lives priest forever. Now here's a big part of the good news, guys. The Apostle Paul taught us and others teach us in Scripture that when we have his life, we have the same power in us that raised him from the dead, and this matters now in how we live our lives, and it matters forever in terms of our ultimate indestructibility as well. Because of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we have that life in us us now and forever. Here's what Paul said. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Having a resurrection focus, a Jesus lives now and forever focus, is critical to our living the kind of life God dreams for us. So the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus, and it's all essential and important, is the most important fact in history, and it should shape our lives. Now last week, I talked about the resurrection and how the resurrection uh, can be uh, believed because of the eyewitness accounts that are offered by those who wrote most of the New Testament. And um, I talked about two eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, having kind of introduced the, 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 the thought that's important to me, let me now kind of pick up where I left off last week by uh, reminding you that the writers of the New Testament and the early followers of Jesus wrote all that we read in the Gospels and the, the, the epistles, the letters to those Christians in the first century and all of us, they, they wrote what we were reading and they did what they did because they saw the resurrected Christ and personally experienced in themselves the life that they had witnessed in him. This is the only plausible explanation for the rise of Christianity and the writing of the New Testament. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. 
For instance, John, when he introduced his first letter to the church, wrote this. He spoke of that which was from, he's talking about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life, the life that God was, and that was with God, appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. In other words, John said, everything we're telling you about Jesus just wasn't something, you know, we heard rumors of. We actually saw the life he was, and that was in him. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him, and now that life is in us. Peter spoke in similar terms when he said, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There is, again, no valid reason to believe anything other than what they said was true about what they witnessed. This uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, but uh, examples of reasons for that would include that this resurrection story was not the sort of thing that one would have made up in the first century in that cultural context and certainly not in a conspiracy that people would buy in to such an extent they would ultimately be martyred because they refused to deny what they knew they had seen. The Jews had no expectation of resurrection occurring in the, in the body of one person. Most of them had belief in a future resurrection, a general resurrection of the dead, but there was nothing in their minds from their reading of the Old Testament at that time that would indicate that one person in history would be raised from the dead, the Messiah. So there was no, no even, they, they didn't even have they didn't even know what to lie about, if you please, if they were lying. The Greeks, on the other hand, they, they thought that, that to resurrect the body would not be a good thing because they de-emphasized the material. And so they wouldn't have even had a desire for the body to be resurrected. They would have preferred, you know, Plato's higher goods that exist in a, a mystical, ethereal realm. So, so they, they were, all for disembodied spirits, as Homer, by the way, talked about in Odysseus, the disembodied spirits of the dead. So they, they didn't even really want there to be the resurrection of the body. So these Jews who first believed in the resurrection of Jesus could only have believed in it because they saw it. The Greeks who followed and began to confess their faith in Jesus, the, the only reason they would talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in bodily form is because it had been witnessed to them by those who actually witnessed it. There's no other explanation for why people are going around telling the story about this guy being raised from the dead except that it happened. Now, we could go on and on and on about that, but the fact is, if this is true, if the resurrection is true, then it's everything, and our lives should be shaped by this. Each of us has access to his life because of his resurrection. Each of us should expect life in all of its fullness because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus should color everything about our lives. It's like C.S. Lewis said. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
I don't only see that the sun rose, but I see everything else in light of the fact that the sun rose or that the sun exists. And so we don't just believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but we see everything in our lives through the lens of believing that God showed up on this planet, entered death, defeated death, and lives now and forever. So let me spend the rest of my time today talking about two people who were eyewitnesses to the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus and who courageously responded to what they experienced to receive his life. Last week, I talked about two eyewitnesses, and I said I'd do two more this week. Last week, I talked about James, a half-brother of Jesus, whose life was completely changed because Jesus appeared to him. James, his brother, half-brother who didn't believe, Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, we're told in Scripture. And we also talked about Paul, the apostle Paul, who didn't see the resurrected Jesus until about five years after the resurrection, but who said that Jesus appeared to him, revealed himself to him, and in him on the road to Damascus. And of course, Paul goes from being uh, not just antagonistic towards Christianity, but the leading persecutor of Christianity, to become the leader evangelist uh, of, of Christianity. Today, I want to talk about two eyewitnesses who had the courage to believe. I want to talk, first of all, about Joseph of Arimathea, and then I want to talk a little bit about Mary Magdalene, and then I'm going to talk about us, okay? So um, hang on for a minute because hopefully it'll all come together if it comes according to plan, which you never know, uh, when I talk about how this applies to us. Is everybody all right? Everybody alive, awake, etc. Just, you know, I have to check on you every once in a while, right? By the way, the nine o'clock crowd was really lively today. Sometimes I tease about the 9 o'clock crowd. They were fired up. There were only three of them, but they were really, really excited. It was my wife. It was a couple, you know, great group. So after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea moved from cautious to courageous. So let's talk about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph, as many of you, probably most of you know, was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who went to Pilate and asked for permission to take the body of Jesus off the cross and, and then, along with some others, buried Jesus in his own tomb. Mark chapter 15 tells us it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, this is the day Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Luke's gospel offers a little bit more color. There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision, the council's decision to send Jesus to be judged by Pilate and ultimately put to death, who had not consented to their decision and action. He himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. 
Now, the Jewish Sanhedrin was a council of 70 Jewish leaders who oversaw all the affairs of Judaism, even while Jerusalem was under Roman rule. They influenced the lives of all faithful Jews throughout the world. The Jewish council or Sanhedrin was led by the high priest, peopled by a variety of uh, folks from Judaism, uh, teachers of the law, elders of prominent families, Sadducees, Pharisees. Uh, The Sanhedrin was like a supreme court but with legislative powers and some uh, police powers as well. So the day before Jesus, pardon me, the day before Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, the Sanhedrin met and they judged Jesus guilty of blasphemy and then they sent him to be judged and punished by the Roman governor Pilate, which begs the question, If Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, where was Joseph when this judgment was made? In fact, one scripture says that the entire council made this decision. So where was Joseph when the Sanhedrin made this decision? Where was Joseph when when Jesus was spat on and slapped and hit with fist before the Sanhedrin? Where was Joseph when Jesus referred to himself as the Messiah or agreed with what the, the high priest said about him being Messiah and then was judged worthy of death? We don't know, We can, but speculate and ask questions perhaps even better. Was he perhaps sitting there, but quietly? Had he maybe not been invited to this emergency meeting or for some reason just didn't show up? Again, we don't know. But what we do know is that his voice was not heard. It was apparent that the other members of the Sanhedrin were not aware as they, again, one scripture says, all judged Jesus worthy of death. They weren't aware that Joseph of Arimathea, one of their own number, was actually a secret disciple of Jesus. In fact, they had at least two of their number in the Sanhedrin who were secretly following Jesus that we know of, Joseph and, 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 and his friend Nicodemus. John chapter 19 tells us, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, which is a small fortune, actually. It would have cost a lot of money to buy uh, that many pounds of myrrh and aloe. So, so Nicodemus is the guy, you'll remember, and it seems pretty apparent that Nicodemus and Joseph uh, were influencing one another around this. Nicodemus was the guy who was a leading, some would say the leading teacher of the Jews and a member of the council who came to Jesus by night. You remember the stories told in the third gospel of John and uh, said, you know, I'm curious about you. It seems like you may be from God. And Jesus said to Nicodemus uh, in brief, Uh, except a person is born again by the water and spirit, they cannot see and enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And it was in the context of this discussion uh, to Nicodemus. We're not sure if Jesus actually said this directly to Nicodemus or it was a, a comment that was made by John when he wrote his gospel later in response to the Nicodemus story. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Here's what is clear, though, that somehow or another, I, I'm sure part of it would have been a result of that conversation that Nicodemus, Joseph's friend and fellow Sanhedrin member had with Jesus, and probably a lot of other things that influenced them along the way, both Nicodemus and Joseph had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they hadn't told anybody yet, they hadn't gone public, they were secret disciples. But then fascinatingly enough, it's the crucifixion of Jesus that somehow moves Joseph from being a secret disciple to being a public disciple. I mean, he takes the body of Jesus off the cross in daylight, helps Nicodemus and others, it appears Mary Magdalene and some others, prepare the body of Jesus for burial, and then Joseph has Jesus buried in his own private family, and very expensive tomb. What happened to Joseph? Again, we're not told in Scripture. We have to be careful not to say something is said where it's not actually explicitly said. But we can make some assumptions or speculate within reason that there was something about the crucifixion that caused Joseph to cross over from secret to public. Something about the dying of Jesus changed something in Joseph. The earthquake must have been discombobulating. The sky turning dark must have struck him uh, powerfully. The dignity with, with which Jesus received his punishment. The sound of the centurion shouting, surely this must be the son of God. But for whatever reason, at that moment, he decides to go public. Whereas the night before, his voice was not heard on the council, disputing Jesus being put to death. The next day, he effectively comes out and says, you know what? I want all of you now to know that I actually believed in him, and perhaps it would have even been present tense tense believe in him. And there are several interesting things that are happening here that show the radical turn on the part of Joseph Arimathea. For, Arimathea. for instance, when he, when he handles the body of Jesus, he shared in the curse of a man who had died the most shameful death known to humanity. And Joseph would have been very familiar with the words of Moses who said in the law, if someone guilty of a capital offense, Deuteronomy 21, is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole. You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And the fact is that Jesus was under God's curse. He received the curse on behalf of fallen humanity. And Joseph now identifies himself in response to the crucifixion, in anticipation of a resurrection that he may very well not have known was going to happen, and he identifies himself with Jesus as one who is cursed. And then he buries Jesus in his, in his tomb. 
Uh, a tomb was a very expensive thing that could only be afforded by, by folks who had a lot of resources. And uh, a tomb typically at that time was carved out of uh, stone uh, and uh, uh, was effectively a, a small rectangular tomb. Uh, Many of us have been to Jerusalem and seen what is presumed to be the tomb of Jesus. There are a couple of sites that people speculate may have been, but you know, in one of them, you can actually walk in it and stand up, and there's a shelf that's carved out of the wall, and when someone would die, they would take the body of that person, prepare it for burial, and in their minds, future resurrection, and they would lay the body on the shelf carved out of the rock, and uh, uh, over the next year or... Or, or to three years, the body would decay, and they then would come in, and they would uh, take the remains, and they would, they would brush it off that shelf into an ossuary, a, a, a small um, a box, and that's where the remains would be kept, and as subsequent family members would die, they would bring those family members in, and they would go through the same process until the remains are a group of Ossuaries. Well, when Joseph of Arimathea is giving Jesus his very expensive tomb, he is ensuring that none of his family will ever be able to be buried there because the body of a man who was cursed by God, according to the law of Moses, had been buried in that tomb. Joseph is not only coming out and going public, but he's kind of, uh, he's all in. He's made a decision. It's very clear that this is going to have implications now and into his future. It's just fascinating to me. Another thing that's fascinating to me is there's an emphasis. Um, you know, with me, you're going to get more information than you ever really wanted, but uh, thanks for listening. Uh, it's also interesting to me that Joseph, it's, it's, Scripture clarifies that he was a rich man. He was a rich man. Matthew said, as... Uh, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Now, that may sound strange to say that in this context, but it actually is, is not just interesting, it's actually important that, that, that Joseph of Arimathea was rich. For one thing, this fulfilled a prophecy in Isaiah about the Messiah, which tells us that he, Jesus the Messiah, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Another thing that's interesting is Jesus had told his followers that it was almost impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, but this, like many other verses, is one of those verses where people stop reading too soon. I think Joseph had heard the rest of the message. Here's what Jesus actually said. This is in Matthew's gospel. It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's where most people stop reading and quoting, but they shouldn't. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is interesting. Jesus says it's challenging for a person who has a lot of financial means to be saved. Well, what are we going to do then? Well, it's okay, he says, because even though with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. I don't know exactly what's happened here, but we know that Joseph was a rich guy who was one of the leaders in Jerusalem, who was a good and upright man, and we're told that he had been waiting for the kingdom of God. And somehow or another, as he heard Jesus, 
Jesus teach, he knew that the kingdom had come and he knew and placed his faith in Jesus and, but he didn't tell anybody. But when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea becomes courageous in response to the crucifixion and he repents, he turns from making it all about himself and he confesses his faith by his act of taking the body of Jesus off the cross. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Because as Joseph secured the body of Jesus and prepared it for burial, there was another person who was very prominent in the story of Jesus who was there. And this story is the story of Mary Magdalene. Let's talk about Mary for a minute. And let's talk about how that after the resurrection, Mary moved from being fearless to being afraid, yet courageous. All right, let's talk about Mary. By the way, you're going to have a master's degree in Joseph and Mary, by the, but not the Joseph and Mary you typically think of when you say Joseph and Mary. Mary Magdalene is a spectacular figure in the New Testament. She's mentioned 14 times in the Gospels, and most of the time that she's mentioned, she's mentioned as the first name in a group of women who were... Uh, uh, disciples of Jesus and supporters of Jesus. The only time that she's uh, mentioned uh, by herself is at the crucifixion and resurrection in, in the Jesus story. And then one time she's mentioned with Mary, the mother of Jesus and an, and an aunt of Jesus. And she's mentioned after their names, which you would expect. But most of the time when you see Mary Magdalene's name, it's the first name in a list of very special women. Luke chapter 8, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, the 12 were with him, and some other women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. This was a group of very powerful women. I like what John Ortberg writes about this or other examples of this in Scripture. He writes, We can overlook how shocking this arrangement would have been in the ancient world. Women did not travel with men. They often were encouraged to simply remain indoors. Respectable urban women and young unmarried girls were expected to remain home out of sight. Don't blame me for that. That's how it was 2,000 years ago. I'm against it, just so you all know. Jesus had women and men travel and study and learn to do ministry together. Imagine what kind of rumors flew around. But not only that, women were paying the bills. The ministry of Jesus is being financed by the wealth of this group of women who are following him. And Mary Magdalene is one of these women. Jesus for the first time in history in, 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 that, that, that I'm aware of, and I have studied this a, a good bit, but the first time in history I'm aware of is partnering with women in his work in a way that had never been known before. It's really stunning in that culture and at that time the role that these powerful women played in his life. Uh, uh, it reminds me, by the way, of the story of a guy who was the CEO of a large company and his wife 
who stopped at a service station. Uh, the CEO went inside to pay, and when he came out, his wife was in animated conversation with the service station attendants, a, a man. And uh, it was kind of interesting how animated the conversation was. And when she got back in the car, he said to her, uh, who was that? You seem to know him. And she said, yeah. She said, that's so-and-so. We knew each other quite well. I dated him for quite some time when we were teenagers. And the CEO very smugly said, well, I, I guess you're glad that you married me, that you got the CEO and not the service attendant uh, uh, person at this gas station. And she said, actually, what, what I was thinking, that if I would have married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the service station attendant. Of course, here at TLCC, you'd have to adapt that story if you know some of the women in the crowd to say the woman was the CEO. (laughs) But nonetheless, Jesus, you got to get a joke in every once in a while, right? Jesus understood the the power of of working not just with his disciples, but also, also these women disciples who were paying the bills for these guys as they were doing ministry. And Mary Magdalene is at the head of that group of people. And one of the things we know about her is that before she met Jesus, things were different. She was very troubled. The Gospels tell us that she was possessed by seven demons. Now, we don't know if that means she was literally delivered from seven demons or if this is a cryptic reference to the fact that she was completely dominated by evil spirits. I believe there was an exorcism, a deliverance, just whether it was literally seven or not. The point is she's completely dominated, extremely troubled by evil spirits. Uh, uh, Seven was the number of completion in the Jewish mind is why I say complete domination. Some scholars wonder about that. But what's clear is that this well Healthy, obviously intelligent, and strong woman was deeply troubled until she met Jesus. And he cast the demons out, and he brought her sanity and peace. And she was a devoted follower of Jesus to such an extent that she was the first person to see Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Mark's gospel tells us when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. It's kind of interesting to me that Mary doesn't seem to be afraid of anything. She is indomitable. She was at the cross. She's one of the people mentioned it being at the cross when all the male disciples have run off except for John, Mary Magdalene, and some of the other women are there. She watched Joseph and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus off the cross. She probably helped place him uh, in the tomb and prepare his body for resurrection. But because they had to be finished with burial before the, the, the sun set on, uh, on uh, the, the Sabbath, Uh, they didn't have enough time to finish the preparations. And so Mary goes the next day, first one there. That's the kind of woman she was. First one there to finish preparations for the burial. And when she gets there, she discovers that the stone had been rolled away from in front of the tomb, and the tomb was empty. Now here's something fascinating, at least to me. When Mary sees the tomb is empty, she started crying. This fearless woman who stood at the cross identifying with Jesus now sees the empty tomb and 2,000 years later we'd think that she started doing a dance around the garden but that wasn't her response. Her response was, what in the world has happened to the body? 
And she runs to find Peter and John. And when she finds Peter and John, Peter and John run back to the garden and they go in the tomb and the tomb is empty. And then scripture says that Peter and John went back to their own homes, but not Mary. She wasn't a go back to her own home kind of woman. Mary stayed in the garden crying. We know she's still crying because two angels appear and one of them says, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken the body of my Lord and I don't know where to find him. She's not contemplated. The fact that he may have been raised from the dead, she's just worried and doubting and emotional. And it appears from a later uh, reading, even fearful in that moment. And she turns around and a man is standing there and Mary thinks he's the gardener. And she says to the gardener, where did you take the body of my Lord so I can go and find him? And the gardener says, Mary. And when the gardener says, Mary, Mary knows it's Jesus. And she falls at his feet and tries to put her arms around his legs, but he won't let her because he says, I've not yet ascended to my father. It's, 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 the, the resurrection was so fresh. He hadn't even ascended to his father yet. It appears that between the resurrection and what we call the ascension, the final ascension, there were numerous ascensions. And he, he, he was so fresh after being raised from the dead that he told Mary not to touch him because he hadn't yet ascended to his father. And then Jesus gave Mary Magdalene one of the most important assignments in the history of the world. He said, Mary, go tell the disciples that I am not dead, but I have been raised from the dead. And scholars call Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles. She's the first one who shares the good news of the resurrection. I want to focus as I start to wrap this up. I want to focus on the fact that among the many emotions that Mary felt in response to the resurrection was actually fear along with joy. That one of her thoughts was doubt along with faith. This is a woman who you wouldn't expect to be afraid of anything or to doubt anything about Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel tells us that this has to do with uh, there was some coming and going uh, to the empty tomb by several people, including some women, including Mary. Mark said the women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. Another translation, they got out as fast as they could beside themselves, their heads swimming, stunned. It's like in this moment, this incredible woman is so overwhelmed. She doesn't know what to think. She doesn't know what to feel. But quickly, she works her way through doubt and she works her way through fear and on the other side she found faith to such an extent that she could announce to the disciples I know we saw him die or at least I did but I just saw him and he's alive I like I like the humanity of this so much. It's one of the things that's so wonderful about the Gospels. You know, one of the great evidences actually for the resurrection of Jesus is how discombobulated some of the resurrection stories are when you compare them from one Gospel to another. Why? Because that's what happens with eyewitnesses. You, you know, you can get two different, three different, four different eyewitnesses who have different responses to what they saw. And, and you kind of see this in the Gospels. And, and, and the humanity of all of this is I love the fact that here 
Mary is who's pointed. You, you know, Joseph was kind of a, he was a, he was a little bit of a wimp, right? Who comes to courage. Mary was the opposite of that. She's this tough woman, but standing in the garden, she's like, oh, she's crying. She's bewildered. She's stunned. She's wondering, where did they take the body? She's fearful. But see, that's part of what makes the story beautiful because courage is not the absence of fear or doubt. It's doing what you know you need to do in spite of your doubt and fear. And Mary displayed her courage in the face of this. This is crazy. What do I do? Reality. She displayed her courage by, again, confessing her faith now in the risen Jesus. And let me close now by talking about us. To be an eyewitness demands courage. You know, we've talked the last two weeks about the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and we base our faith based on their eyewitness accounts. But here we are 2,000 years later, and like I talked last week, some of us can say on the basis of those eyewitness accounts, but on more than that, I witness that Jesus Christ is alive because I believed and I know Jesus lives in me. Well, to become an eyewitness demands as much courage as it took for Joseph to take the body off the cross, and it demands as much courage as it took for Mary to hang in there in spite of all the questions and conflicting feelings surging around in her person. Because when we begin to feel that inner witness that says, I believe, Jesus died for me and was raised from the dead and is alive and here now, it doesn't mean that we won't think thoughts of doubt. It doesn't mean that we might not want to be a little secret about what it is that we're thinking about. I want to remind you that faith is not psychological certainty. Faith is not the total absence of doubt. Faith is not the absence of questions. Faith is not bewilderment or the absence of bewilderment that's trying to figure out what in the world's happened here. Even Mary, in her relationship with Jesus, when she saw the empty tomb, her response was to cry. And sometimes as we're coming to faith, and I have a real sense, guys, right now in the life of our church that we have a bunch of people who are in the process of coming to faith. Life-changing faith in Jesus. I don't mean Easter Sunday morning, I go to church and I bought a new outfit for it. Faith. I'm talking about life-defining I see everything in the world through this lens kind of faith. I sense right now that there are a lot of people, a lot of people in this room, a lot of people hanging out at TLCC, lots of people who are in the process of coming to faith. And I've been doing this for a while. I kind of get a sense when this is going on. I, I feel, I, I just want to be very clear with you. You're thinking about crossing the line. 
you're thinking about going public. You're thinking about confessing your faith in Jesus. Some of you have been thinking about being baptized, but you, you're still a little perhaps bewildered, confused, trying to figure it out. What are the implications? That's okay. Courage is working through all of that and deciding to do the right thing in spite of some of the questions. I don't think any of us, if we're honest, I still have questions. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I mean, that's a pretty big thing, right? I mean, it's okay to ask questions about something that turn the world upside downy. Faith is saying, but I believe. And I witness the resurrected Jesus in my life. Now I'll tell you, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus more than I believe anything in the world. And still, when I go to study it and so on and so forth, I keep asking the questions. And I believe what the eyewitness people said. But more than anything else, I know what I witness. I know what I have experienced. I know what it is to believe in Jesus and be born again. What it is to have the very life of Jesus Christ, the life of God living in me. And at some point, the only way that happens is someone saying, I believe it's my time. I'm going to cross the line. Would you folks please stand with me? I have, uh, you know, every once in a while, I feel very strongly that I want to lead us in a confession of faith. What I've learned here at TLCC is You know, some people come to faith in a moment. Some people come to faith over the course of weeks and months and thinking and learning and hanging out with other believers and considering and all of a sudden one day they wake up and say, wow, I I believe. But I think there's a time when you need to confess your faith. Here's a powerful passage of Scripture offered to us by the Apostle Paul. He said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And today, I want to give all of us an opportunity to confess our faith in Jesus Christ. And for many of us, most of us, This is a repeat of something that we've done many times. By the way, I think it's great to confess your faith a lot. I don't think that's a one-time thing. I think that's a many-time thing. So I want us to confess our faith, but here's what what I know by God's grace is going to happen in the next few moments. There are going to be people who are going to speak their faith out loud for the first time ever. There are going to be people who have their Joseph of Arimathea moment and go public about something they've been wanting to believe is true. There are going to be some people here who have their Mary Magdalene moment that in spite of how crazy all this is, I know it's true and I believe this is going to be the moment when you are born again, when the Holy Spirit comes in response to your faith in Jesus 
and makes you new and alive. So what I'd like to do is I want to pray a prayer, and I'm going to ask you to pray the words after me. All of you who would already be believers, I want you to pray out with a strong, strong voice. And I want you to give an opportunity for some others who are praying this for the first time to pray with you. Are you ready to join me in prayer? For There are people in this room for whom this is the most important moment of your life. So pray this after me. Father, Father, in the name of Jesus, I confess my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe Jesus rose from the dead for me. I believe Jesus is Lord now. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I turn from sin. I turn from living life for myself and turn to live for you. Come into my heart. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. I receive you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God.